Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Stephen Kalin, Wall Street Journal Middle East correspondent covering Saudi Arabia and the Gulf from Riyadh and Dubai. He has lived in the region since 2009 and previously reported from Iraq, Egypt, and Lebanon. Stephen and I will be talking about President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and the region next month and what the Saudis are expecting from the visit. We'll also be talking about Iran, Yemen, and how the Saudis are managing the oil windfall that they are receiving from higher oil prices and how that may or may not be affecting their current development plans. My conversation with Stephen Kalin of The Wall Street Journal begins now. Stephen, welcome back to On the Middle East. Thanks. Good to be with you. So U.S. President Joe Biden is heading to Saudi Arabia July 15-16 for a meeting with King Salman and his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's known. And uh, they'll be attending and hosting an impressive GCC plus three summit. Now, this, as we know, is a a, a turnaround since uh, Biden took office last year. That is a turnaround in U.S.-Saudi policy. And Saudi Arabia must be very pleased with this. Uh, You are there in Riyadh. You report from the capital. What is the expectation for the summit from the Saudi perspective? Well, yeah, I think um, it is quite a turnaround, um, given the way the past uh, year has gone. You know, we reported a couple of months ago that um, relations had hit um, a pretty low point. And, um, you know, uh, leading up to that, there had been shuttle diplomacy. And and after that, there there was also um, some more visits. I think a, a, an important one seemed to have been the visit by the CIA director, Bill Burns, um, a couple of months ago. Um, and so I, I think the Saudis um, have, you know, just looking at their public statements and the way they've been framing this, um, they uh, are very uh, happy and excited um, to sort of showcase the the reforms, the Vision 2030 plans that they've uh, they've been implementing. Um, just if, if you know, looking at the the way the trip was announced, um, that they highlighted about a dozen different uh, topics that the crown prince wants to talk to the president about um, to sort of highlight the ways in which Saudi has been trying to take more of a leadership role um, in the region and, and in the world. Um, so uh, they're, you know, they're, they're sort of, I think was this, um, this sense of uh, we have a lot to, a positive story to tell. And I think the Saudis are trying to tell that. What do you think the kingdom wants and expects from the United States on Iran? There have been discussions between Saudi and Iranian officials in Baghdad. The Iran nuclear deal seems to be on life support. Iran's going to be a big part of this summit, a big part of President Biden's trip to the region, which begins with a stop in Israel, which is also concerned about Iran. How do you see the the Saudi perspective looking across the Persian Gulf at this point at, at Iran? Yeah, I mean, it does seem like Iran is kind of, uh, you know, one of the main focuses of the trip without, you know, it obviously being uh, a stop on the trip. Um, 
it's kind of this um, the, one of the big topics. And the um, you know region, countries in the region have been talking about it um, both with the U.S. and and uh, amongst themselves to a certain degree. The Abraham Accord certainly helped um, make some of those conversations a little bit easier, uh, direct conversations. Um, you know, we saw a, a visit, um, I think it was just last week, uh, by the Israeli president to the UAE um, to meet with now President um, Sheikh Mohammed. Um, and, you know, there was a meeting a couple months ago in uh, in Nejev, which the Secretary of State attended. That was, there was a lot of talk about, um, about Iran there. And so I think that this is going to be probably a continuation of that, of that conversation. Um, the Saudis have been saying for over a year that they're concerned about the Iran deal, uh, about the U.S. getting back into the Iran deal, um, and that while nuclear the nuclear file is, of course, um, important, um, they're very concerned about uh, Iran's regional activities, uh, militias, um, particularly the Houthis, the, these missiles flying across the, the border into Saudi Arabia. Um, and so they've been asking uh, for, it, for the U.S. To, to better understand their position um, and their concerns and to to step up and sort of um, uh, fill in the gaps. I mean, the U.S., uh, the White House has been saying for the past year um, that uh, the U.S. will um, support Saudi uh, national security uh, uh, in, in this regard. Um, the Saudis have been saying they don't really feel like um, that's, you know, the, uh, um, that, like that those promises are being fulfilled because the U.S. has been uh, relocating Patriot missiles and, you know, kind of repositioning um, in ways that don't make Saudi feel very comfortable. Um, so I think they'll be looking for some tangible um, improvements or changes um, in that stance. What about the diplomatic track? Um, how much traction is there? Uh, how much um, faith is there in the diplomacy that it could lead to some type of understanding or de-escalation of tensions. There's now been, I think, five meetings in Baghdad between Saudi and Iranian representatives. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's sort of, um, there were a few meetings back to back last year, um, seemed to be gaining some momentum, um, and then they slowed a bit. And I think there was, was another one recently, uh, I don't recall the exact date, but maybe a month or so ago. Um, and so I think I think it's always good, obviously, when when rivals and, and enemies are, are talking to each other, um, better to have open lines of communication. Um, and, you know, usually some talking is better than none. Um, there don't seem to have been many tangible outcomes yet of those those negotiations um, from what we're hearing from folks on both sides. Um, the the Saudis um, have been asking for help with uh, with Yemen, they've been asking um, for you know from the Iranian side to um, to get the Houthis to tone it down. They haven't gotten much positive response from that. Uh, although there's there's also this Yemen ceasefire, which we can talk about. Um, and uh, you know the the Iranians have been asking the Saudis for a restoration of diplomatic ties, um, which the Saudis seem to view more as sort of the end result rather than a first step. Um, the most recent thing that I, that I think was talked about was um, bringing, uh, uh, it was re related to um, Iran's um, uh, mission to the Organization of, of Islamic uh, Cooperation, which, um, which is based in Jeddah, and so sort of getting them 
to reopen that office, um, which is kind of a step towards, you know, restoring diplomatic ties, and also some um, some sort of logistics on on Hajj uh, quotas for Iranian pilgrims. So um, that that's been in the works for months, and we haven't seen any concrete progress. But um, I think it's uh, it's useful to have multiple channels. Stephen, you mentioned Yemen. Uh, there's actually some hope uh, for Yemen. The truce has been holding now for I think more than two months. U.S. Yemen envoy Tim Lenderking is a frequent visitor to Riyadh. This is a, a potentially good news story. I mean, it's a good news story in that the truce, which is fragile, seems to be holding, and there may be potential for um, a further traction toward a political settlement. Tell us how Riyadh is is looking at Yemen, how Saudi Arabia sees the war there and the potential for a settlement. Yeah, I think the um, I think you're right. I mean, it is it is good news. Um, there have been, I, I'm going to butcher some of these statistics, but, um, you know, the, the first two months that the ceasefire started, I think, um, right at the beginning of, of Ramadan, um, and in the first month or two, um, there were, you know, lowest casualty rates in Yemen since the war began, um, very few airstrikes, um, very few cross-border attacks. Um, so, all of that has been positive in terms of um, a reduction of violence. I think the big question is how sustainable is it? And so it was, it was again, more positive news to see the, um, the ceasefire extended for an, an additional two months, two weeks ago. Um, and, you know, while the ceasefire is in, in place, slowly some of the other files have been moving. We've seen flights um, to between Sana'a and Cairo, um, as well as Sana'a and Oman, uh, restored to, to a degree um, Hodeida uh, port has has received more shipments um, of, of of energy and uh, to, to a degree. I mean, not everything is is to the uh, the extent expected, um, but but there's been progress in some of those fronts, and so I think all of that is positive. And um, you know, the big question, which I, I fortunately don't have an answer to, is um, how this how this plays out, um, and it'll be interesting to watch whether this sort of um, uh, ceasefire of two months by two months. Uh, just keeps on getting extended or at some point it gets extended indefinitely um, and it just becomes sort of a de facto end to, end to the, the Saudi campaign in Yemen, the Saudi-led campaign, um, uh, or, or whether, you know, it provides the basis, the platform for a comprehensive settlement, which um, I think is, is obviously quite complicated, um, uh, but maybe would give, might give the Saudis a little bit more comfort in knowing that this is actually fully resolved. Um, so I, you know, I think the, uh, I think there's, there's been for a long time an eagerness from the Saudi side to end this war and to get out. Um, it's cost them a lot in multiple ways. And, um, you know, so, uh, we, we might, you know, this might be a, a positive year, um, in, in that front. What can we expect with regard to normalization with Israel? The Saudi position has been pretty clear that there needs to be some steps on the Palestinian track first. President Biden is going to Israel and the West Bank, plans to meet with uh, Mahmoud Abbas there. Um, this has been pretty much the Saudi position since 2002, the Saudi-led uh, Arab League peace proposal at that time. Uh, how do you see the Israel normalization track? What are the Saudis looking for as positive steps toward some type of um, deal or progress on the Palestinian issue that would allow them uh, to take 
a further step towards or a step toward normalization with Israel. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The, the Saudi position really has been pretty fixed um, publicly uh, on this um, issue. Um, I think, um, you know, the Crown Prince has said in multiple interviews now that um, he's eager to have good relations with with Israel and sees a lots of potential, you know, areas of cooperation. Um, but there there needs to be the Palestinian issue needs to be addressed um, adequately, and. Um, you know that I, I don't know that we've seen a lot of progress on that front. Um, I think that the Saudis have, at various points, expressed frustration, um, which is not unique to them, um, with the Palestinian um, leadership, <clears throat> and um, you know, as well as the Israeli, um, the Israeli, you know, various Israeli governments. Um, so I, I don't know that we're going to see much, um, uh, you know, progress um, in in a major way. There, there could be, there have been. Over the last few years, some some sort of small um, shifts and um, accommodations, uh, allowing Israeli overflights to to the UAE um, when after the Abraham Accords was a significant move. Um, it wasn't, you know, it's far short of normalization, um, but sort of a, an acknowledgement that um, you know we recognize you. Um, there have been uh, speculations in in especially in the Israeli media um, that. For example, overflights might be extended. Um, there could be uh, direct flights um, for Hajj pilgrims um, from Israel to, to Saudi Arabia. Sort of small, small things like that um, that would improve uh, the relationship. Um, uh, we've got no indications really from the Saudis where they where they stand on on such things. Um, uh, you know, I think there there have also been uh, quiet quiet visits, um, both by officials and. Um, uh, you know, businessmen that have been reported in, in various local media. Um, and I think that's also, you know, uh, th there's, there's a direction of travel, um, but I don't know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure really on this trip, uh, the president's trip. I mean, I think it's significant that he's, it's symbolic that he'll be flying from directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia. Um, it's, it's not clear to me yet how far, um, that relationship will will develop, you know, in the next month. President Biden's visit takes place against the global energy crisis and high gas prices in the United States. What more, if anything, can Saudi Arabia do and is willing to do that would have an impact on gas prices? Well, I, I think Saudi Arabia, since you know the beginning of the year, since the invasion of, of Ukraine, has um, been clear that it's um, it wants to stick to this um, uh, oil production pact that it has with OPEC uh, and, and Russia and other states. Um, it uh, wants to maintain stability in, in the markets, and it doesn't see um, you know a, a much space for increasing. Uh, production, production, and if it does so, it's going to do it within these these sort of parameters. Uh, and they they agreed recently to increase production a bit more, um, but that's unlikely to have uh, a huge impact on on oil prices. Um, it's not it's not entirely clear um, what you know whether the Saudis could um, single handedly do enough to to bring down those prices. Um, so for sure, that'll be part of the discussion um, that we've you know reported and and have been hearing for months that. That is a major um, topic of conversation, although not the only topic of conversation when between you know American and, and Saudi um, officials. 
Um, so I, you know, I think, I think it's definitely, um, on, will be on the president's mind. Um, I, I would suspect, um, given where prices and inflation are in the U S um, and, you know, we'll have to, it'll be really interesting to see if there's anything between now and the trip or, or after the trip, um, that has a, a tangible kind of impact on, uh, on that issue. How, how is the oil windfall affecting Saudi development planning and its pre, you know, uh, pandemic uh, objectives of diversification uh, of its uh, oil resource and energy resources. You wrote about this earlier this month in the journal. Give us the view from from Riyadh as oil revenues are extremely high. How has that affected their development planning? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting um, topic. Uh, I spoke with the, the finance minister a few weeks ago. And um, he's been trying for months, um, if not years, to um, try to insulate um, the Saudi budget from the boom and bust cycle, um, which it has it's experienced over, over many decades, um, in which you know oil prices go up and they spend a ton on big projects, and then oil prices collapse and they have to cut back, and then you've got these sort of half-finished projects. Um, and so he's trying to bring a bit more kind of regularity and predictability. Um, to that, and it seems like for the moment um, that that's holding. Um, you know, the the idea that that he sketched out to me was um, the the Saudis will um, hold on to any any sort of surplus that they've that they accrue from uh, from high oil prices for the entire year, and then at the end of the year they'll they'll um, figure out you know where how much of that needs to go to foreign reserves and other kind of buffers in the financial system to ensure you know they can pay their bills um and then how much of that goes to pif and for what projects or the national development fund and for what projects and they're they're going to try to bring more kind of scrutiny um so that when they when they do increase spending uh it's for a very specific purpose um so you know i think these a lot of these these giga projects um, that they, they they call them that neom and the red sea project and others um you know will likely continue to be well funded um they may accelerate uh towards the end of the year if they get uh if they get some of this they see some of this new uh oil money um but but basically the saudis are saying they're trying to um create you know a bit more of a professionalized process of uh, you know, accounting for and spending this money so that it doesn't just go into, um, you know, whatever's whatever somebody wants at the moment. Um, and and the other point on this is that uh, you know the, the Saudis have been trying to crack down on corruption, which uh, a lot of the big uh, oil revenues often sort of fell, fell through the cracks. Um, and so this is the first time really um, since I, I guess price, prices went up a few years ago, but. Um, they haven't been this high basically since the vision was announced. So it'll be an interesting test, I think, of um, you know w- w- how they how they spend um, and how they maintain their sort of fiscal discipline um, when oil prices are ba- are back up. Stephen, you're based there in Riyadh. Tell us about the mood in the kingdom, the social and economic changes of the past five to 10 years? And what is the buzz in the kingdom among young people, the private sector about the direction of the country? Um, you know, I think, um, I think over, it's, it's hard to generalize, of course, and there's lots of, um, you know, uh, 
there's lots of diversity. Uh, but I would say one one takeaway that I've um, had is uh, in a in a period of the past two years um, in which the whole world has gone through the coronavirus pandemic um, and lots of government struggled to respond. Um, you know, Saudi. Um, I think a lot. Of, I've heard what I've heard from a lot of Saudis is that they they feel really comfortable and confident in the way their government responded. Um, at times, the lockdown was more severe um, than some folks wanted it to be. It, it may have impacted uh, the local economy in certain ways. Um, but I think uh, a lot of people feel like uh, they, they have confidence the government took moves to protect. Um, people from the pandemic, and um, you know, it, it never really got very bad um, in in Saudi. There was a moment where uh, ICUs were getting close to capacity, but it was never really like it never felt as dire as in some of the the big hotspots in the world. Um, and there's there continue to be a lot of social reforms and and openness and things you know changing on a sort of weekly, if not daily basis. Um, new new kind of social things um, coming up, um, you know, just events and music and concerts and uh, things that improve uh, the daily lives of a lot of people. Um, and, I, you know, and then the, on the flip side, we've also noticed that um, the uh, cost of living has gone up, um, at, you know, as the whole world struggles with inflation, so does Saudi. Um, and I think because of the way that they've cut um, subsidies and in increased taxes, um, uh, for some people, prices have gone up uh, quite a bit, um, and some people are are having a hard time. Um, so I would say it's mixed, um, but it's it's definitely a very different place than it was um, socially uh, when I than when I arrived five years ago. Stephen, thank you for taking the time today to talk about Saudi Arabia. Your articles in the Wall Street Journal are required reading for those of us following the region and the kingdom. Again, with appreciation to you for joining us today on On the Middle East. My pleasure. Always good to talk to you, Andrew. We will return after this break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest Stephen Kalin and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month is renowned Israeli French artist and playwright Amos Gittai. 
On Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week speaks with Shibi Greenfield of the Jewish Agency. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com. Thank you.